TBS Friday and streaming on Paramount Plus. Campfire's coming to you! Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules, and you shave another day off your sentence. Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a felon. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate, you're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Light the fuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny and he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. Charles, how you doing? I'm doing great. Are you back to uh, announcing uh, the minor league baseball games? <laughs> I am. I am back. I can't. I can't. You know, it's hard to transition in and out of that because that is now my my passion in life. But um, yeah, we are. I'm, I'm happy to be back with you, Charles. And I'm happy to be joined by Arthur Anderson one more time. Why don't you tell folks who he is, what he did on Mission Impossible 3, and yeah, we'll get into it. Uh, Well, yeah, I just want to also thank again Michael Toy for setting this up so that we could talk to Arthur. Um, He did the intro and and, um, got us in touch with Arthur, which was awesome. But uh, Arthur was the first assistant director on Mission Impossible 2, working very closely with John Woo. And then he was co-producer, came back for uh, Mission Impossible 3 and then worked with J.J. Abrams and his whole team putting that together. So he's got great uh, stories about both 2 and 3 and uh, and of course about Face Off. We get more we get a little more Face Off today. Um, so, uh, yeah, he talks, talks a little bit more about his, uh, working relationship with John Woo in general, cause he worked with Woo many times, um, throughout his run, uh, shooting, directing movies in, in, uh, Hollywood. So, uh, yeah, you know, Arthur tells the stories better than I could ever. So I think it's better to just let him tell the stories and have me shut up. All right. Well, we'll jump into it and be back afterwards. Well, let's let's move on to mission three. I mean, so when when did you get involved? Because there were a couple of false starts on the third one. Um, so which version did you start on? <laughs> There's <laughs> which, a lot of stories about. We know the which one. We, we know which. Yeah, we know which one you ended on. So which one did you start on? Uh, I I started on the, on the last version once JJ uh, JJ Alex and, and Robert Orsi had written the script. Right. So it was in, I got a call, I think it was in January 2005, and it was Stratton Leopold's executive producer. And he said, Hey, you know, uh, Paul and Tom, I wonder if you'd come and just, uh, first he asked me what I was doing. I was supposed to be directing a horror film in Louisiana. And I said, Well, I got this horror film coming up, but it's not the summer. And he said, Would well, you come in for two weeks and look at the script and break it down and 
this thing has to be finished by the end of the year for a May release. So I said, sure. So I went and broke the script down and it was complicated because it was shooting in um, not just LA, but it was in Italy, Germany, and China. So when I broke it down, I'm trying to figure out how do you get this thing shot by like Thanksgiving? How is this going to happen? So uh, I went through and as I broke it down, I broke it up into pieces. I said, well, there's going to be, you know, it's going to be the first unit, but in order to get the first unit done in as few days as possible, there's going to have to be an action unit that precedes the first unit. So the action unit is going to have to go with the doubles and shoot a lot of the action. And then the first unit is going to have to come in when the, just as they're finishing that and shoot the coverage with the actors. And then there were a lot of visual effects in it too. So now there's going to need to be a visual effects unit that's going to shoot all the visual effects so they can get all of this put together in post, which will be separate from the first unit and the action unit. And then probably there's going to need to be a second unit that's going to have to go in and clean up anything that the action unit, the first unit, the visual effects unit. So it was, and, and now you're in one, two, three, you're in four different countries. So what I did was I, I did a giant block chart. Uh, so I, I did the schedule. It came out around 100 days. And I did a big block chart. It was 105 days. I can't remember. The initial. So I did a giant block chart. And I showed how action unit would have to precede first unit. And then here's where visual effects unit would be shooting in China. So you could get all the visual effects for the top of the Bank of China building. And uh, it was super complicated. So I did this giant block chart, right? And then... Stratton and Paul said, okay, can you come in and explain this to JJ? I said, sure. So we go in a conference room and I'd never met JJ before. Um, I actually called some people who'd work with him on his TV shows like Alias and stuff and said, wow, this guy's really great. He's a shooter. He really knows what to do. So I put this big block chart out and I explained to him how all the units would have to work to be able to make this happen. It took about 20 minutes. And then um, he said, okay, I get it. He says, right, it's really good. So um, he called Paul and Stratton outside. And um, then they came back and said, hey, would you be interested in staying on and, you know, co-producing on the film and kind of managing all this? I said, well, I'm directing this movie in, uh, in Louisiana. I'll, I'll stay as long as I can. Well, <laughs> so what happened was the Her Hurricane Katrina hit wiped out the production company in uh, Louisiana. So I didn't end up directing that movie. So I ended up staying on uh, Mission 3 for the whole shoot. And um, it, it was a great experience. I mean, J.J. is one of the most gifted writer director producers uh he really gets it you know and i had a great time on the film and it was super complicated and the ending of that film took place over in china and once again we had changed they wanted to change the ending of the film because jj had an idea to make the, the, the ending much better which once again it, it, it came out great but we had started shooting by the time that started happen so we hadn't had a chance to go over to china to look at the new ending he had written uh, so Vic Armstrong, the action unit director, and I went over to scout this village in, in China called Shitong. It had been there like 1,500 years. And uh, there was a restaurant there that was 700 years old. I said, well, how often do you change the menu? It said at least every 100 years. Um, but it was a great <laughs> village. That's the, that's the village where it had that long canal that Tom's running down. Yeah. And so Vic and I went there, and then we just – we looked and we uh, – I videotaped – I made a map, and I videotaped all the angles. I thought – we could we could shoot from and then 
when Tom came out that window of that building coming down, we said, okay, we're going to need a techno crane here. So we had to bring that. And then we looked at where he had to run down that long stretch and we said, you know, the only way to be able to shoot that and make it look good is we're going to need a cable cam. And it was like an 800 foot run <laughs> and to take a cable cam over to China at that time. You're going to have to build giant towers, but the cable cam, I said, I said, wow, that's 150 grand. No doubt. He says, I'm not making that call. You're going to have to call. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I call Strat and I go, you know, we need, JJ's going to need a cable cam here to make this work. And it's going to probably cost about this much. But JJ had done such a good job of shooting and being on time on the film. He'd saved a lot of money, which enabled to bring the cable cam over. Cut to, uh, so, so we, I make this diagram and I, and there's no other director in Hollywood you could like go to and get, okay, here's a map. Here's where we think all angles could be from. You're not going to have a chance to go there, but uh, here's what we, if Vic and I came up, we think is the best chance for you to be able to do this. And um, uh, so cut two, we go over to China and we get the cable cam set up and, and the first unit shooting uh, over on an alleyway doing some stuff. And Vic and I are over just checking the cable cam and we can't get the cable cam to work, the, you know, because it has big drums that roll back and forth. And they're like 10 minutes from coming over. And I go, Vic, we got to figure this out. And so Vic gets over and he's working with the camera. And finally, what we figured out was that the, you know, they're 50 hertz over in China. They're not 60 hertz. And so it was a mismatch in the hertz. So we got that fixed and like, Literally five minutes later, the first unit comes over with Tom to go run it down. Now, I'll tell you a story about Tom. So we can measure how fast the cable cam's running along the sidewalks. And now, Tom has to run through this small sidewalk. We've got extras all the way through the place. And we can tell how fast he's running because we got a, a speedometer on the computer. It tells you how fast the cable cam's going. <laughs> and so, wow, this is going to be interesting. So we shot this thing with him running. And the... Uh, we had to do it a couple of times. The first time he was running faster than the cable cam was going. They finally got it dialed in. And the final speed that he was running was, it was 16.8 miles an hour. And I don't know if you know how fast runners run, but that's like Olympic quality. And, and not, <laughs> it's not just a flat straight. These sidewalks had bricks are all over the place. He's running through people and he was just smoking it. I couldn't believe it. Wow. But that that was one of those kind of interesting stories where you, you you try to plan for everything as best you can, and then you get there, and something doesn't work, and you're sweating it right down. You've spent one hundred fifty thousand dollars on this rig and setting everything up, and you're just hoping that it works, and then something goes wrong. But you know, somebody finally figures out. Oh my gosh, the Hertz rate! <laughs> and then you get that magical shot, yeah, that we're all obsessed with. It's so good. I can't believe he's running more than two football fields. Is that you said yeah, eight hundred like feet or something. Eight hundred feet. <laughs> I don't know if it made the whole run because then it, it took a curve, but I mean, he right. was just hauling the fr I couldn't believe it. I said, is that thing right? <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's one thing when you're running on a track and it's smooth and it's even, everything's cool. But it's another thing when you're running on uneven surface through people, you know? Wow. Amazing. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. The only time we, we run that fast is when the catering truck show <laughs> Arthur, you know what i mean well I'll let me just say that was another funny thing is uh uh we had to take our our own caterer over there and uh four-star catered he did a great job all he did he, he brought a grill with him he prepared all his food out of australia and would have it shipped over and because uh we had thanksgiving dinner 
uh, over in Australia in, in that village. We didn't break for Thanksgiving. So he, he did a great job making turkey, turkey dinner for all of us. And then the craft service guy, I don't know if you know this, he did a, um, he did an hour show yeah. called Cooking Apostles. Yeah, uh, Mike, yeah, Mike about Kehoe. About Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, Mike Kehoe. He did a great documentary about uh, food prep and all that kind of stuff and what happened that day and how the food had to get ready and all that stuff. And then, yeah. And then, uh, and the other thing was, JJ, JJ was so efficient in the shooting, we actually wrapped there um, in China a day early. So we were, we were under schedule and under budget because he, JJ's a shooter. You know, he knows exactly how to tell a story, how he wants to tell it, uh, how he designs the scene. There's not a lot of extraneous shooting because the great thing about being a writer director is, you know, the story and you know, where you have to direct the audience's attention. And he's just, he's a, a master of that, you know? And so that was so much fun working with him that way. And then I directed the cleanup second unit. So Vic Armstrong was directing the, all the big action unit stuff. JJ's directed first unit. Then there was lead up sequences. Like when they're coming onto the bridge, the big, big bridge shootout, I went back to the East coast of Norfolk, Virginia and did the second unit with, with the armor truck and the cars and all that and doing the establishing shots on the bridge. We shot all the plates there. And then the actual bridge sequence we shot, uh, I believe it was in Calabasas yeah. on a big open surface and which was an, an amazing engineering feat in its own because we had flatbed trailers with these big green screens that we would pop up and then um, in post that would use the place to make it look like you're in Norfolk, Virginia. And we built like, I don't know, it was 400 feet of that bridge, the trusses and stuff. Um, but that was another engineering feat, a combination of practical effects and visual effects that worked out really well. It, was, it ended up being a really, really great sequence. It's amazing. Yeah, we've heard about the snakes in that field, that snake wrangler that was there. Did you have any, any encounters with those snakes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We had snakes there. The worst part, though, is you know the helicopter chase through the um, uh, through the wind turbines. Uh, you know, we did that out in Palmdale, and so uh, I went out there. Vic Armstrong was doing it was second, you know, doing the helicopters going through those those wind turbines and stuff. And and we had to snake around. You got at least seven snakes every night out there. It was like Snake City. It was, and I'm not afraid. <laughs> listen, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, on a farm, and listen, everything that it at a cut down trees in the swamp. We had water moccasins, rattlesnakes. So I'm not really afraid of snakes. They're not my friends, but uh, that was really unusual to have to have a couple of snake wranglers out every night protecting the crew from all the rattlesnakes out there. <laughs> that was a real boom for the snake wrangling oh, industry. I'm oh sure. My that, oh, we got another <laughs> yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, if he was really smart, he was just bringing some from home. Guys, look at all yeah. the ones I caught. You didn't catch what <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying that happened. Yeah. back with more from arthur anderson after the break cbs friday and streaming on paramount plus cal fire's coming to you don't miss tv's hottest show fire country this is a high complexity rescue with a low chance of success follow the rules can you shave another day off your sentence critics call it explosive and pure entertainment i'm a fella i'm not fit to be anything else you're not an inmate you're a firefighter bring it on Fire Country. New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, 
where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Well, we talked about Kimball. Obviously, Mindell is also a big Tony Scott collaborator, and the look for three is very striking. A little controversial in some circles, but very mm-hmm. striking. And I was wondering how how that visual language was decided upon and what it was like working with him. Well, JJ and Dan worked early on in the film, figuring out how what the visual uh, look of the film was going to be. And uh, Dan, always, Dan always shoots a lot of tests and trying to figure out, right? And and really, any good DP, before he starts, you know, sits down with the director, you figure out. And a lot of times with the production designer, because color's a major part of um, a film, the color design. What, what color the set's going to be? What does the frequency of color instruct you about the set and the action? Is it going to be dark? Uh, is it going to be, you know, it's going to be light and the costumer gets involved in that too. What are the actors going to be wearing to influence? What do we, what do we say about the characters? You know, like the Barbie movie just came out. It was all pink, right? Um, T-Mobile, they're, they're all magenta. So it's all about branding. So it's the same thing for a scene. Every time you look at a scene, you got to look at, well, okay, what's the environment the actor's going to be in? What are the actors going to be wearing? How's that going to influence what you're trying to tell from the character and from the story? So mission three JJ collaborated with the production designer and with Dan, with the costumer. They went through those scenes. They figured that thing out. The one, I think one great thing JJ did when they'd gone through with, with Dan, the production designer, uh, costumer, is he did a giant picture wall for the movie. So we had these uh, uh, four by eight constructed boards on a stage, that, and there was like four rows of them. And there were pictures uh, from the beginning through the end of the movie about what the movie was going to look like, the locations, characters, you know, there were cars. It's like when you do a commercial, you know, you have a lookbook, you go through, you show the look. Well, well JJ did that for the entire movie because it was his first feature film. And so he was smart because then he put together a presentation so he could walk the studio executives. He could walk the marketing people through it. Here's what the movie's going to look like. Here's the design. Here's the locations we're shooting at. Um, and got everybody excited about it. You know, it's like doing a teaser uh, for the movie. And it also helped instruct the crew about what his look and his design and his intention uh, for the movie was going to be. So it made it easier on everybody else. Once he saw that, okay, all right, we get this because listen, we're shooting in four different countries and a lot of time with the language barriers, you know, at one point we had between LA, Italy, Germany, and China, we had 1500 crew members on, you know, so it was a big deal trying to manage that, explain to people what we were doing and, and keep everybody with the right, in the focus of the right visual design, you know? Um, but he did a great job with that because that told everybody the story, what he was looking for to try to achieve in the movie. And then it, everybody got on board and, and, you know, and had a good visual representation of how to execute JJ's vision of the film. And Dan's a great guy to work with, but he's really talented. Um, he's always coming up with, you know, new ideas or different ways to do things. And um, like those little xenon lights and things catching the edge of, 
camera. He's the one who started that whole uh, that whole craze, you know, that that brought that in. So uh, I, I like Dan because he's he's a thinker, you know, and he's creative, and that's what you always hope for when you put together your creative team on a movie. Is that you always try to hire people who uh, aren't just good technicians, but they live to do what they do, right? It's, filmmaking is like a drug. No matter how old you get, you still it, it's in your bloodstream, and it's a creative process that you know that uh, that you thrive on. And that's when you put together a film. Those are the people I always try to bring together to uh, uh, to work on a film, so that it's a it's a it's listen, it's a benevolent da- dictatorship. The director in a film, you know, he's the one in charge. But uh, JJ's one who always brought out everybody's creativity, his highest potential, because he, he would trust you. He said, hey, here's my vision. Go out and do the best you can. Give me the best you got. And it would always encourage you to go out and try to achieve more than that. You know, so, so much fun working with him. It's really a cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. We, and we, we haven't had JJ on the show yet, but we had, we had Dan and we love Dan and, and God, the, oh, the, use of col- the use of color in, in three is really just gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really striking. Um, can you tell us any other stories about th- any, about three? Anything? Any other big challenges? Charles, how are you not asking about the the Vatican? Oh, that's your favorite scene. Yeah, anything from the anything from the Vatican you can tell us? Because <laughs> that's one of our favorite sequences in the whole franchise. Uh, okay, uh, this is a great story. So, JJ, <laughs> so JJ wants to do a shot with Jonathan Reese Myers pulling up the DHL van, and he goes inside the Vatican, right? So we go through the usual process of asking permission for, hey, we'd like to do the shot. It's not going to interrupt. the, And it's just in July. It's tourist haven there, right? And so we go through the normal procedures of asking permission. And uh, the Vatican says, no, we're not going to do it. So I said, hmm. And JJ said, well, it's too bad. We really need that shot. I said, I have an idea. I said, <laughs> I said okay. So uh, we're going to take the steady cam operator. We're going to disguise a steady cam, all kind of in black. We're going to hide him around the corner. And then I'm going to set up a commercial shoot. It's going to be, I, I, I'm going to give me a camera over there. I'm going to get some extras. I want uh, a couple of priests. I want some nuns. I want some passerbys. And so I set up this commercial. I'm doing a holy water commercial. It's a new commercial for uh, uh, sparkling water, right? So I set up this whole decoy commercial that then took <laughs> – all the tourists who were there came over to watch this shoot. And then Tommy Gormley had the steady cam operator, very limited crew, and he would give Jonathan action. And the DHL van would pull up with Jonathan. He'd get out, he'd go inside, the steady cam would come over, shoot him. So we were able to do that about three or four times before people caught on that something was going on. But we got the shot. <laughs> were there were there were Arthur, there women that story, in bikinis? That story is legend. That's that's amazing that you were the one who came up with yeah. that. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Drew. No, we've we've heard that there were women in bikinis as part of this decoy. Is that true? That could have been true. I'm not going to say yes or no. I uh, I don't recall women in bikinis. You know, I somewhere around here, I have some eight by ten photographs. I'll go back and review that. But I remember uh, I had priests, I had nuns, and then I did have some extras. But I, I don't recall I had any bikinis. But see, I'm 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 a protesting Catholic. I'm a Protestant, so it really didn't bother me uh, doing that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you find those photos, please share them and we, we can share them with the world. Uh, okay. I actually, yeah. you know, I was cleaning up the other day and I did come across this. So I'll, uh, you can give me your email. I'll scan one of those and send them to you. Oh, great. Amazing. Oh, we'd love amazing. that. That's so great. Um, I, I will tell you a funny story. Let's see. Uh, 
from Mission Impossible 2, I'll just go back to that for a second. This is pretty interesting. Is um, you know, the opening car chase between uh, Tandy and Tom when they're going down the mountain road? Yes, and that that crazy rig of the two cars spinning. Yeah, 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 yeah. spinning. Well, the funny thing was, we were going to get. We wanted Porsche to give us promo cars for that, right? A Porsche, and the Audi TT wasn't even out yet, so we couldn't give Porsche the script. So uh, at Paramount, we, the head of Porsche flew in, and then Paul and I had to go into conference room and try to explain. I had a couple of toy cars, had to explain to the head of Porsche how it's going to sell them millions of dollars worth of cars because it was a love story with the two cars. So. I sat down, I had to explain this story with the two two toy cars and um, how it ended in the climax. And it was what a great thing it'd be for them. And they bought it. I mean, they said, okay, and it's like, how many cars? You said, okay, I need four of each. And then I need six spare parts for everything on the outside of the cars. He said, well, what do you need to all the spare parts for the outside of the cars? Well, I said, well, there might be some contact between the cars and we'd need some spare parts to, to be able to put that together. Cause I had asked John, I said, John, now are these cars to be heavily impacting? He says, no, no, just light touches. So Brian Smurz and I, the stunt coordinator said, I said, you know, we should get extra spare parts and then we should reinforce the fenders on these cars just in case he goes for it. And sure enough, once we started shooting the sequence, John said, nah, they need to hit a little bit harder. So, <laughs> and we were supposed to keep one set of cars pristine so that when the movie was coming out, Porsche could take those cars around. Um, we tried our best. I think at the very end, we might have put a few dents in the hero cars because we started running out of spare parts. But uh, it worked out great, and it sold a lot of cars, and the Audi TT was very successful launch. So that's one of those great things when a brand comes along and they help you out in the movie, and it works out great for them also but um yeah it was it was a lot of fun shooting that car chase it was a in that big rig we did with the spinning reel and, and the car goes over the edge and you say it was just a dynamic scene. it was just a great way uh, to open to be a, a good hook for a movie yeah well this might get us fired from our cushy new relationship with paramount but you were on beverly hills cop three yes a notoriously fraught production <laughs> And we would love to know what the hell happened there. Which which part? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that watching the movie back today, you can tell that Eddie is is in the bare minimum of actual sequences. It seems like whenever you cannot explicitly see his face, he is not there. And I know that he and Landis got into it pretty badly, but you know, they had gotten into it. I think. You might be a little misinformed because on, on Beverly Hills Cop 3, I know, I know in prior movies, they had some exchanges. But in Cop 3, they didn't really have any that I recall, unless it was all set plus any heated exchanges. I mean, oh, interesting. wow. So this is, we're, yeah. we're, 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 this is news for the world then. This is great. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not on set. I mean, you know, listen, Eddie always showed up on time. Uh, he, he did his job. Um, this is one thing, you know, when he came to set, he wanted to be ready to shoot. So if you weren't ready to shoot, he'd go away. But we, we never had, uh, I know in previous movies, there might've been some conflict between them, but on cop three, uh, that didn't happen. I mean, you showed up and listen, we had a lot of huge action to do in that. Um, he, he showed up, showed up on set. He knew his lines, he did his work, you know, and, uh, and it was a, 
it was a great experience for me. There's some really fun action on the amusement park ride. Oh like, my there's god! Like, you know the stunt of taking the kid, like holding the kid and jumping from one. I don't know what, what's that, the a other fer- a Ferris wheel yeah, or whatever. Like the, it, that's a crazy stunt. And and we shot uh, a lot of that up at the Paramount's. What is it? Paramount's Great America, wherever they were. And it was always complicated because Eddie going through the park and it'd be three rides in the background. And I'd have to time the ride so that you'd see like the roller coaster going just as he was walking through. It was a timing nightmare. And then, well, here's a, kind of a funny story. At the very end of the movie, the last day of filming, we had that big ride set you were just talking about built on stage 16 at Warner Brothers. And there was a 60-foot blue screen there with that ride behind it. And uh, our last day of filming, we're supposed to go there. And the Northridge earthquake hit that morning. Mm-hmm. And the 60-foot blue screen went back and forth. Not, we had a bunch of 18Ks, knocked those over. A 30-foot section of the outside stage wall came off and crushed the construction coordinator's brand-new BMW that was parked outside. <laughs> but fortunately, we, we hadn't showed up for work. So I was at about 5.30. And so we called off the shoot, and um, uh, we had to – wait for weeks until we could reconstitute it and, and, and put it all back together. But that, yeah, that was our last day of photography. So that might, that might've been the thing you heard about that was the big consternation. <laughs> Northridge earthquake. Wow. And I'm pretty sure, uh, 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 John or Eddie caused that. That was you know, a natural, natural event. Yeah, that was an act of God. Yeah. I, well, I think the, the yeah. story that maybe Landis has said was that, uh, that Eddie, Eddie wanted to do, be like an action star and didn't really want to be funny when he was doing the movie or something like that. Yeah. I don't, that might have been off camera conversations you had with him that never occurred uh, on set. So that that listen, I defer to John. He knows what really went on off off camera, but on the <laughs> on the set, you know, listen, it was a great great film. I had a, had a great time working on that. We'll be back with more from Arthur Anderson after the break. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. You know, we we love John Woo so much, and you were really with him for his entire run of Western movies. And so I wonder just how that how your relationship evolved when you knew that he was sort of done with the Hollywood area, you know, right. the Hollywood game. Like, yeah, what, what was that like? Uh, listen, John's uh, first thing. John's a great humanitarian. He's just a great guy. You know, he grew up in extreme poverty. And had a, a family sponsor him when he was young to help him go through school and stuff. So he's always felt a responsibility in his movies um, to give back. You know, that's why when you see the end of his movies, you'll see the relationship with the dove and, you know, uh, um, always trying to be uplifting in his films. So he, he's the nicest guy you'd ever want to work with. And he's super creative. I mean, he thinks so far outside the box sometimes he's on the edge of the envelope where just the gluey parts left that kind of keep you holding on. And he'll imagineer these things and then say, Hey, do you think you can do this? 
And I said, I'm not going to say no yet. Let me investigate it. Or he'll, he'll say, okay, I want to describe something to you. So for 20 minutes or this, I'm you know, taking notes. He says, how long will it take you to write that in a script form? I said, man, about two days. He says, oh, what's wrong? You're so slow. <laughs> said, a lot of information in here. <laughs> and, but he's, he's great that way. He, he thinks, uh, he thinks in visuals like no one I've ever worked with before. And then, and, and is able and a lot of times when you, when you get on the set, you have storyboards and things, and then he'll realize he needs an, a piece to connect those two dots together. Like when we did the scene in Face Off with uh, John Travolta and, and, and Joan in the bedroom, we took the camera, and during that sequence, it was moving quickly back and forth. I mean, on each side. I mean, going in arcs and back and forth during the dialogue. And I couldn't – I said, John, I just know how are you going to cut this together? He says, uh – Give me a couple of days. And he said, come up to the editing room. And he showed me how he cut it together and and how it moved through the emotion of the scene, contacted with the actors and told the story in a visually dynamic way. And I said, wow, that's genius. And that that was a uh, face off. Then I got it. I got his filmmaking style after that. And um, it's just he he thinks in a way that is great storytelling that moves the audience through the film in a unique way. You know, he's, he's just really gifted that way, but he's also a great uh, human being to work with. He's just, you know, uh, very down to earth, very humble. And um, hey, listen, I've been with him for over 20 years now. And uh, anytime he calls or needs anything, I'm there. And, you know, listen, he went over to China, you know, to do uh, something that had been on his mind to do the, you know, the Red Cliff Wars. And that was a, you know, oh, yeah. a, a giant, that was a giant movie. I mean, you think of the scope of that and they don't have nearly the technical equipment, the personnel we have. I mean, that was a huge undertaking. So, um, listen, he's just a great filmer and I, I, I blessed it. I've been working with him for so many years. I learned so much about him, you know, now doing my own stuff, producing and directing TV, um, and, uh, second units and things. It's just, it, it you know, he taught me how to be, a director and you know i write also so um it's been a blessing for me to have work with somebody who can pass on such great skill sets and and i'm not as skilled as he is but he's able to latch onto a small portion of that and use that in the stories i'm telling now well next time you talk to him put in a good word yeah for us. i definitely will. we're we dying on the show yes and i, I, I yeah. want to say quickly too that you guys did some amazing motorcycle stuff in paycheck Oh, as well. I was waiting yeah. for this. I was just waiting. <laughs> those, some of those shots that you guys pulled off in paycheck with the motorcycle scenes are just insane. Those are some great cable cam shots and rigs, and yeah, it, it was it was awesome. That was a that was a, a a great movie. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for coming on the show. It means so much to us yeah. uh, to have you and to have you share these stories. So, hey, listen, I, I think you know, you guys have got a great body of work out there. I just looked up all the shows you've done, and I went, "Wow!" Oh yeah, you got to check them out. Have you have you kept up with the other movies? Which what the ones you're with the other Mission Impossible movies? Uh, I've uh, I've gotten through about four and five. Um, I haven't had a chance to catch up from there. Okay, when when you do, we might have to record a little patch where we ask you to rank all the movies. So okay. when you're done, oh yeah, we'll, we'll follow. <laughs> we up always ask you, everybody yes. to, to to rank all the Mission Impossible movies and rank Tom Cruise's haircuts. Okay, yeah. What was it like being so close to that two haircut? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, wow, that must have been an honor. Uh, Did you smell? Could you smell it? Listen, it 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 was natural. I mean, it, you know. It, Tom doesn't spend a lot of time in makeup and hair. I mean, he comes in, he, he gets it on, he he goes. He so. wakes up that way. Yeah, yeah. 
it's good. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Wow. Are you, do, you, do you prefer, I mean, you had the, the long hair in two and then the short hair in three. Are you a short hair guy or a long hair guy? What do you like better? Listen, styles change. Right now, I'm more of the short hair guy, you know? Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fair. Well, Arthur, thank you so much for, for coming on, accepting this mission, and giving us all these amazing stories. Great. Uh, hopefully, we'll talk to you very soon. Listen, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a pleasure talking with you. What a great guy. What a great storyteller. And for two people who are obsessed with John Woo... What a thrill. Yes. What a thrill. And well, and, and this week we get to hear a lot of great stuff about JJ and about Mission Impossible 3 as well. I mean, it's awesome to hear some behind the scenes on the shot of Tom running in China. I mean, that is probably the most iconic shot of Tom Cruise running. I mean, that's right. Wouldn't you say? I mean, that shot goes on forever. It's so amazing. Yeah, that shot is amazing. I was, I, there's just so many great ones. Yes, true. It's a tough competition. Including in Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is, I, I don't know if you know this or not, Charles, but it's now available on digital, 4K, Ultra HD, Blu-ray, and DVD. I don't know if you heard about that or not. but it's, I, I was actually aware of that, but I'm I'm thankful for you reminding me of that. So thank, thank you for that. Yes. yes. I want to remind you. I want to remind everyone. <laughs> I want to remind our fans. Good. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm glad. They, they yeah. need to know because they should get it if they haven't gotten it already. Yes. Um, I also love that he clocked, that Arthur clocked Tom's speed while he was running. And of course, it's like Olympic level speed. <laughs> of course it is. He doesn't do anything that's non-Olympic level. Are you kidding me? Yeah, and then also how long it was. I mean, like you you get the idea of the distance with that shot and how long it is, but but it, it you know I don't know, just that's a it was a that's a long run that he was doing sprinting on like uneven ground. It's crazy. It's it was just so great to hear about that. Of course, yeah, I loved hearing about that. What do, what do you think when you hear something like? That? I mean, that what a pain in the neck to put that together. Do you just think? Yeah. Do you want to do shots like that in your career, or are you are you happy just watching? <laughs> That stuff. I would love to. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, having having like a, a shot like that um, as part of your filmography, that's a that's a, a pretty great honor. I think uh, I'm sure JJ is very proud of it and uh, anybody would be. It's a pretty iconic shot, you know. All right. We'll put it on the list. We'll make it make sure you get it. <laughs> Give me a spider cam film. down a river yes. in China and I'll, yes. I'll get that shot someday. All right. You know, hey, All right. I'll do some we'll kind do of it. ode to it. Sure. Uh, and we, okay. we also we get to hear firsthand from Arthur, the man who concocted the fake commercial shoot in front of the Vatican in order to distract the tourists so they could get the shot of Jonathan Reese Myers. Do we have any photos of that? There must be popper. We need to find what that date was and look and see like paparazzi photos yes. from that period. I bet there are photos somewhere of the fake commercial shoot. You think? Yeah. 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 Yeah, he couldn't remember if there were bikinis, right? But the there was nuns or something. We've heard right? bikinis from everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but who knows? Uh, and also fun to bring up Beverly Hills Cop three. Although maybe it was not as fraught as we thought that production, or maybe he was I don't know being nice. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a big Beverly Hills Cop three apologist. Are I you love, really? Yeah, I love this when Serge comes back. That, that is, is just, true. Him, know, his return. That is, is really my happy place. I loved that movie as a kid, and so you know, it's uh. I don't think it quite lives up to the first two, but it's fun no. to watch Axel Foley and there's some great stunts on the on the in the amusement park and isn't there a really catchy jingle for that 
a park too. Yeah. I can't remember what it is now, but Well, there's gonna be another one next year, so we'll we'll be all about Beverly Hills Cop four. Yep. But yeah, that was great to hear. And uh yeah, that was just a really fun conversation. We really appreciate Arthur for him uh giving us that time. Yeah. So uh anything else from you, Charles? I think that's it. I think uh, we got to get uh, everybody to come back next week. Should we tell people who we're talking to next week? Sure. I don't even know. Who, who are we talking to next week, Charles? Well, we, we have. I know we have a few interviews in the bank, and so, but you might not know who's next. But I have to say, I think this is one of my favorite interviews we've ever done, um, and it is with Dale Dye. Who do you want to tell people who don't know who Dale Dye is, Drew? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I would love to. I would love to tell people who Dale Dye is. So Dale Dye is a military coordinator for pretty much every big military movie, starting with Platoon. We get into his relationship with Oliver Stone and the, the, the conversation, but he is also a wonderful actor, and he plays Barnes in the first Mission Impossible, and he was absolutely lovely. I agree, Charles. This is one of our best interviews ever. Again, not because of us, because of him. He's so funny. He is just, just hilarious. He's funny. Tells great stories. Great stories. Very down to earth. And, and what a fascinating career and history. Yeah. I mean, like Tropic Thunder, yeah. which he also worked on. He talks about that in the interview. Is kind of, is like kind of based on him and what he did for Platoon. Yes. You know, training the actors and stuff. So anyway, it, it, it's a absolutely amazing interview i can't wait for people to hear it uh you're you're in for a treat that's right and per charles's tease you can catch brand new episodes of light the fuse the official mission impossible podcast every tuesday wherever you get your podcasts and we want to encourage everybody to like subscribe rate and review wherever you're listening to the podcast follow us on social media at light the fuse pod on instagram twitter we're not calling it x uh, facebook and now tiktok Uh, Tell all your friends about the podcast. Uh, If you want to follow the official Mission Impossible accounts, it's Mission Film on Twitter and Mission Impossible on Instagram. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, I reminded everybody that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is available right now on digital or also 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray and DVD. So however you want to get this movie, get it. It's got great special features. And uh, yeah. You need an excuse to watch that train scene again? I don't think so. Just go go ahead and grab it. Yep. So I think that's it, Charles. Is that it? Well, actually, the, I should also say that the uh, the first six Mission Impossible movies are currently available to stream on Paramount Plus. So no better time to revisit. Uh, subscribe to Paramount Plus and, and check them all out again. And uh, of course, we'll be back next week. Okay. See you then. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Alexandra August. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Friday and streaming on Paramount Plus. Calfire's coming to you! Don't miss TV's hottest show, Fire Country. This is a high complexity rescue with a low chance of success. Follow the rules, and you shave another day off your sentence. Critics call it explosive and pure entertainment. I'm a fella. I'm not fit to be anything else. You're not an inmate, you're a firefighter. Bring it on. Fire Country. 
New episode Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and now streaming on Paramount+. Plus.